This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the House passed the Republican tax bill today. Now it's up to the Senate. Harold Meyerson will report. We'll also have your Minnesota moment. Al Franken apologizes for sexual harassment, and his victim accepts the apology and says she is not calling for him to resign. Plus, Hitler in L.A., the shocking story of the Nazi movement in Southern California in the late 30s and early 40s. Historian Steve Ross will talk about his best-selling new book and its significance for our fight today against racism. But first, David Cole on Trump Year One, The Resistance. Well, it's been a little more than a year since Trump was elected. Uh, What has Trump tried to do, and how successful has the resistance been in blocking him? For that, we turn to David Cole. He's national legal director of the ACLU, a contributor to the New York Review, and legal correspondent for The Nation magazine. We reached him today at the ACLU office in New York City. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, now we're going to step back from the news of the day, the news of the week, to look back over the year since Trump got elected. Uh, Even though Republicans control both houses of Congress and two-thirds of state legislatures and now have a majority on the Supreme Court, you say Trump's ability to do damage has been substantially checked. Are you sure about that? Uh, well, I, I, I'm sure that it's been substantially checked. I don't think it's uh, we can sit back and, and relax. But um, but look, here, here's somebody who who, who came to office uh, with uh, majorities in both houses of Congress, and uh, as you said, majorities in most of the state uh, houses as well for his party. Uh, he has yet to pass a significant piece of legislation, um, and he has been repeatedly. Uh, uh, repeatedly uh, frustrated in his ability to uh, act through the legislature to um, put in place anything that would, uh, you know, constitute law. Um, uh, he has been able to act um, in, in areas where the executive can act independently, um, withdrawing various environmental protections and uh, imposing things like the travel ban and the like, but. Those things, uh, number one, are subject to challenge in the courts, and number two, are subject to being reversed uh, when the next president is elected, who I'm quite confident will not be Donald Trump. Well, let's talk about some of these uh, key issues. You know, the one, my let me say my pet peeve is is voting rights, the new voting restrictions that Republicans have been pursuing, not just Trump, but for more than a decade now that helped make Trump president. And uh, you and the ACLU have been fighting a vigorous battle on that front. And I'd just like to check on where we stand at this point, especially uh, one of the most outrageous cases is Ohio's purge of the voting rolls. The state of Ohio removed people from the voting rolls who chose not to vote, and I know that you and the ACLU are challenging this in court. Where do we stand on this Ohio purge of the voting rolls? So that's, uh, that is scheduled to be argued uh, in the Supreme Court in January. Uh, we, we, we prevailed below uh, in, in advance of the election, and, and, and the court, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and joined Ohio from, in fact, 
uh, knocking people off the rolls uh, for failing to vote, which is what they were doing. Uh, and many people were, uh, thousands of people were able to vote who otherwise would not have been able to vote. Um, for 20 years, the Justice Department, uh, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, uh, agreed with the position that we took in, uh, in that case and that we, uh, and on which we prevailed. Uh, but once Trump was elected, the Justice Department reversed 20 years of precedent and is now uh, on the opposite side, supporting Ohio's efforts to purge voters. Uh, that'll be argued probably in January. Uh, this concept of failing to vote, I wonder if you'd like to reconsider the term failing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a crazy... I mean, it, it, the, the idea... Uh, Congress passed something called the National Voter Registration Act, the Motor Voter Law, um, some some time ago. And one of the things they were uh, concerned about was states uh, knocking people off the registration rolls uh, and frustrating their ability to vote. Uh, and there were a number of states that did it simply if you didn't vote in enough, you know, in enough elections. They presumed that you, you know, were either dead or, or moved, and they just knocked you off the rolls, even if you had were still breathing and 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 just weren't, you know, inspired by the uh, by the candidates. So Congress said you cannot have a system uh, that results in the removal of a voter from the registration list uh, for failing to vote. And one of the reasons they did that was because they said, you know, you have a constitutional right to vote. You also have a constitutional right not to vote. You exactly. Can't be exactly. Can't be exactly. Yeah. You have a constitutional right not to vote. It's part of the right to vote. So you can't be punished for not voting by being removed from the voting rolls. I think the ACLU has a very convincing case here, and I guess so do the uh, lower courts. So are the lower courts. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes in the in the Supreme Court. But that's a very important. Uh, uh, voting case going forward. And and what else is happening on the uh, voting rights uh, front from your perspective? Well, you know the big the big thing is the the the, uh, the Trump uh, administration is uh, following the playbook of the Republican Party, which is uh, seeing that there are a lot of new uh, demographics in this country, a lot of younger voters, a lot of voters of color. Uh, who who they who may not support the Republican Party, and instead of adjusting their policies to try to reach out to those voters, they search for ways to deny their access to the ballot. It's called voter suppression, and in their terminology, it goes under the name of preventing voter fraud. Uh, they haven't actually identified almost any voter fraud, but they nonetheless raise it as a bugaboo as a justification to knock people off the rolls and. So Trump is sort of laying the groundwork for that, created this uh, voter fraud commission headed up by Chris Kobach uh, from uh, from Kansas, who is uh, sort of the architect of voter suppression. Uh, and uh, recently, we re and, and we've challenged the makeup of that uh, of that commission. We've challenged the secretive way in which that commission has operated uh, in the courts and. Uh, we were able through the courts to get um, to force Kobach to disclose documents that demonstrated that the entire purpose of this commission was, in fact, to lay the groundwork for suppressing the vote, for denying people access uh, to the vote. So, you know, we're watching that very, very carefully, and uh, and we fully suspect that uh, that there will be efforts at the state level to. To sort of do Trump's bidding, and 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 we'll be we'll be there at, at each uh, at each step to challenge those efforts. We've talked several times on this program about the uh, 
The legal challenges to Trump's Muslim travel ban. Uh, I wonder where we stand at this point. I know the Ninth Circuit here in California just recently, the headline was allowed Trump's travel ban for people from six Muslim-majority countries to go into effect partially. What exactly does that mean? So, you know, the, the, this, is, this is the third iteration of the travel ban. The first iteration was struck down by the courts. Uh, including the Ninth Circuit. The the Trump administration did not take that to the Supreme Court. Instead, they put out a second iteration. That, too, was struck down by the courts, including the Ninth Circuit uh, in California, but also the Fourth Circuit uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Um, uh, that this the, the administration took that up to the Supreme Court, but then issued travel ban 3.0, uh, on the verge of oral argument in the Supreme Court. And so the case was sent back to the district courts to look at whether travel ban 3.0 is any different. So far, both the district court in, a district court in Hawaii and the district court in Maryland have concluded that travel ban 3.0 is just as unconstitutional and just as illegal as travel bans 1.0 and 2.0. Uh, and uh, that they are still an effort to basically put up a sign saying Muslims keep out, and that violates the Establishment Clause and is inconsistent with uh, the Immigration uh, Act. The government has appealed. Appeals are pending in the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit. What the Ninth Circuit's most recent order did was essentially um, conform the district court's injunction to, in the same way that the Supreme Court had done before, which is to draw a distinction between how it applies to people seeking visas who have a bona fide relationship with someone in the United States, meaning some family relationship or some relationship with a business or entity like an admission to a college or an offer of employment, those people are protected. But people who have no bona fide relationship to anyone in the United States are, are not protected by the injunction, um, uh, at least as it stands at this uh, at this moment. One of your most important arguments is that the courts can't stand up to President Trump alone, and we don't really expect them uh, to do that. Uh, you see it as a much bigger uh, struggle than simply the ACLU uh, going before the Ninth Circuit. Let's talk about that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, 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 so, so I think understanding the travel ban and the response to the travel ban requires you to look not just at what's happened in the courts, not just at the arguments made, but at what happened outside the courts. You know, the, the unprecedented public outcry in response to the, you know, the very first travel ban where, where tens of thousands of Americans, you know, rushed out to airports to, uh, to protest the, uh, the ban and to, to provide assistance to those who were affected by it. That same weekend, you had uh, you had statements by uh, Michael Hayden, who was the head of the CIA and the National Security Council, uh, or not the National Security, the NSA, National Security Administration, uh, under um, uh, under George D D W. Bush, uh, saying, you know, how about that? Uh, I'm with the ACLU on this one. Dick Cheney. Uh, said uh, this is uh, this is un-American. John Yoo, who wrote the torture memos, said this is an abuse of executive power. Uh, dozens of former national security and State Department officials of both parties 
filed briefs uh, saying this undermines our security. The presidents of all the major American universities and all the leading science foundations and uh, all of the leading uh, tech companies uh, filed uh, uh, either petitions or letters or amicus briefs uh, challenging uh, these bans. And so by the time the courts were taking these up, you know, the, the... much of America had had stood up uh, uh, in 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 sharp criticism of these uh, of these actions by the president, and that uh, that has an effect on the way you know the, the the willingness really of the courts to stand up to the president on a matter of national on a, that is alleged to be a matter of national security uh, and immigration, and in other areas the 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 the, the people standing up have have, have frustrated the. A president from from even getting you know getting his uh, his laws enacted. So the you know the, the the town halls in which people came out and and excoriated their uh, their representatives uh, if they were you know not standing up to the uh, to the effort to repeal Obamacare and and time and again that effort has failed. Um, so so you know I I think when you, when you look at the response from really. You know, the day after the Trump's election to the, the 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 women's march, the day after the inauguration, to the airport demonstrations, to the outpouring of of uh, opposition to the um, to the ending of DACA, which has led Trump to sort of backpedal on that and say, "Well, I hope Congress can fix it, and if Congress doesn't fix it, maybe I'll extend it." I mean, all of these things are illustrations of the power of people in a democracy to push back against their leader when their leader is engaged in activities that are contrary to the to the people's will and to the principles uh, and values of the country. We've only got a minute or two uh, left here. Uh, we've talked uh, about uh, the ACLU's work on voting rights and on the uh, travel ban. What else is on your agenda as legal director of the ACLU? What's at the top of your agenda besides those two right now? Oh well, there's there's so much else. We've got we got two two cases coming up in the Supreme Court in in the next couple of weeks. One on whether the, uh, both of which the Trump administration on the other side. One is whether the police can get uh, access to your cell phone location data, which shows where you travel on a, essentially a minute by minute basis, uh, you know, twenty four seven. Whether they can get access to that information without a warrant, without probable cause, without any Fourth Amendment uh, constraints whatsoever. We have another case involving uh, whether uh, a, a a bakery uh, can refuse to serve a, a, a gay couple because it opposes uh, same-sex uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, they're claiming a First Amendment a, a right to discriminate. Again, the Trump administration is, has come in on the side of. Uh, those seeking an exemption from an anti-discrimination law, we're seeking to enforce uh, that that anti-discrimination law, and we're still fighting the Trump administration over the the policy, the outrageous policy of the uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement of blocking women who are authorized to get abortions uh, from obtaining uh, those abortions when they are undocumented uh, minors uh, being held in, in in federal facilities. David Cole, Citizen Action is the key to resisting Trump. 
the ACLU appreciates citizen action and encourages and indeed helps organize citizen action. David Cole is a legal correspondent for The Nation. He's a contributor to the New York Review where he wrote about Trump year one. And he also happens to be national legal director of the ACLU. David Cole, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks for your work. Bye-bye. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Next up, the GOP tax bill and your Minnesota moment, the news about Al Franken. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Hitler in L.A. Historian Steve Ross has that story. But first, our Washington update. And for that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect. He's a contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page and other publications. Uh, Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John, even on uh, what is clearly a crummy day here in the nation's, the nation's capital. <laughs> crummy in, in many ways. I, I'm, let's start with your Minnesota moment news from my hometown of St. Paul. Al Franken, not just accused, but now acknowledged uh, to have victimized a woman he was on a USO tour with before he became a senator of sexual misconduct. He has apologized. The news at this hour is that the victim, has, uh, who's a uh, TV uh, uh, announcer in Los Angeles, uh, says she accepts his apology. Uh, quote, people make mistakes, and of course he knew he made a mistake, Leanne Tweeden said. Yes, I accept the apology, close quote. She also said she isn't, she is not calling on Franken to step down unless more women come forward. Uh, so are we done with Al Franken, or is this going to continue? Um, I'll give you a resolute, I don't know. Uh, the, uh, uh, Al Franken has requested the Senate Ethics Committee to look into this, and uh, they will, and that you know creates the possibility, if there are other women, for them to come forward. I suspect if there are other women who come forward, Al Franken might be compelled to resign. Uh, and... Uh, uh, he's certainly been one of the best United States senators, from my perspective and your perspective, uh, the one who has been most diligent in, in uh, uh, writing herd on uh, Attorney General Sessions, who could stand a lot of writing herd on. Yes. Uh, and uh, just, just generally, and, and someone who occasionally gets spoken of as a possible 2020 presidential candidate, which seems less likely today than it did. Uh, than it did yesterday. So a lot of question marks around this. And of course, for for Senator Franken in particular, coming at a time when you have all the stuff with uh, Roy Moore in uh, in Alabama, uh, you know, Democrats on the one hand uh, certainly don't want to be seen as hewing to a double standard. It's okay for our guys to do this. Not that really anything 
that uh, Sanders has done remotely reaches Roy Moore levels. Uh, and on the other hand, as I said, this is one of the, the more outstanding progressive legislative leaders in the country. So uh, a, a tough moment all around. Striking difference. Couldn't There couldn't be a more different response to accusations. Um, Roy Moore denies everything, says all the now nine women in Alabama who have accused him of misconduct, groping, rape, and rape, uh, attempted rape, are lying and are uh, political tools of uh, Mitch McConnell, I believe, is his current view. Um, Al Franken, the exact opposite. He he issued a very full uh, apology. He says he he accepts all everything she says is true, um, and he welcomes an investigation. Not sure exactly what would happen at a ethics committee since she's made her statement. He has he has apologized for everything he did. He admits everything. So if that's all there is, it's not going to be a very long hearing, I guess. No, well, presumably, if if no other women come forward, it would it would be a short hearing. Meanwhile, Roy Moore, as you suggested, is on the verge of 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 saying that uh, uh, you know twenty years ago Alabama didn't even exist yet, so it couldn't have happened. Uh, uh, so yes, there is a clear night and day difference there, and as as well as on you know most other virtually every other matter uh, as well. Conservatives, of course, are are outraged about Al Franken as as they should be, and. Wait till they find out what the president did. I'm sure they'll call for his immediate resignation. Yes, there have been some calls for the Ethics Committee to investigate not only the uh, Al Franken issue, but the 16 women who said that they had been harassed or worse by Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, this is uh, uh, the uh, classic Pandora's box. We'll, we'll, We'll see where this goes. So that's the, uh, you said it was a bad day in Washington. For those of us from Minnesota, this was the bad day. Al Franken news, is anything else, any other bad news from Washington today? Well, yeah. Uh, The House on a a straight, almost straight party line vote, voted to approve the uh, reckless and uh, cruel tax cut bill. I think it was 227 to 204. Can I ask you a Uh, question about that? Ask me a question. Would it be fair to say that Republicans are seeking to raise taxes on millions of Americans and take away health insurance from millions of people in order to pay for a huge giveaway to corporations? Yeah, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, the, The longer answer is there's all kinds of ridiculous double standards here, including you will recall that, uh, you know, for a while, Mitt Romney and other Republicans used to say corporations are people. Yeah. Uh, well, this, this, this bill clearly favors corporations over people uh, in, in the sense that you decided, in, in, in the sense that uh, the tax cuts on corporations are made permanent, whereas those on the people who uh, do get tax cuts, and I'll get to who those are in a minute, uh, those expire uh, in, in, in 10 years. And, uh, as far as California is concerned, you know, there's this huge issue, uh, over the Republican bills eliminating, uh, the tax deduction for state and local taxes, which is really going to socket to, to millions of, of Californians. Well, guess what? Uh, the, uh, deduction for state and local taxes isn't removed for corporations. Uh, so it's not only that corporations are people 
It's that corporations in the Republican worldview are better and more worthy than people. So, so there. Corporations are better than people. Corporations yeah. get to deduct their their state property and income taxes, right. and people right. don't. Corporate right. tax cut never expires. The individual tax cuts do expire. That seems wrong. <laughs> well, again, I can only say yes. No, the, and the study from the uh, joint. Uh, uh, Congressional uh, Committee on Taxation concluded that as of 2027, this uh, bill will cause a, 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 a will, will mean that everyone whose household income is under $75,000 uh, will pay more in taxes than they would if this bill had never been passed. And for people who are poorer, uh, who, who make somewhere between, say, ten dollars and $30,000 a year in their households, which Sad to say, there are a lot of such California households. Uh, they will uh, see their taxes go up over had, if there had been no bill uh, as as soon as 2021, just just four years from now. So it is a completely regressive tax cut, and it's a tax cut that singles out California. Although of the 14 Republicans from California. Uh, 11 voted for it anyway, even though this is going to sock it to their own, their own constituents. And not only their Democratic constituents, but their Republican constituents. Now, as I recall, you and I have talked about this more than once before. Hillary Clinton carried seven congressional districts in California currently represented by Republicans. They are regarded as vulnerable, I think, is, is the word. How did they, the vulnerable Republican representatives from Congress vote on, on uh, the tax uh, cut for corporations, which penalizes California right. residents? The, the two Republicans who are most vulnerable, who are uh, Daryl Issa from Southern Orange and Northern, uh, Southern Orange County and Northern San Diego County, and Dana Rohrbacher from the Orange County Coast uh, voted no. Uh, uh, Dana Rohrbacher uh, said, uh, well, this would raise taxes on my constituents, which is absolutely true. And as we know, Dana Rohrbacher really wants to funnel money to Julian Assange in Russia. But that's another issue. <laughs> that's another um, issue, but it's an uh, interesting one. It's an interesting one, yes. And, and uh, Tom McClintock, who represents the northeast corner of the state and has been an anti-tax guy forever, uh, also voted no, but there were only 13 Republicans who voted no nationally, uh, and uh, no Democrats uh, voted for the proposal. It was, it was all, pa- all passed entirely by Republican votes, and 11 Republicans in California, including in Orange County, uh, Ed Royce and, and Mimi Walters, and in northern L.A. County, in the Lancaster-Palmdale area, Steve Knight, all voted for it, though uh, the data show that their... Uh, constituents who take deductions, and as many as half of their constituents do take deductions, maybe looking at a tax hike of as much as $10,000. So, um, you know, I, I, I can only assume that uh, these Republican representatives will, will, will choose to make up the difference uh, for all their constituents, or, or else they've, they've, they've got a, a nice golden parachute from, somewhere if and when uh, they are voted out of office, which is something they just made more likely by virtue of their vote. So Ed Royce is from Fullerton. Fullerton. He, he voted yes. Mimi Walters is from Irvine. She voted Irvine. yes. It's not hard to see see the ads that say Mimi Walters voted to raise your taxes. Uh, no, not, not least because it's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, so we will want to. Uh, and what were her, what were the arguments of the Republicans who voted in favor of this? I know Mimi Walters. There was a lot of pressure on her and a lot of questions about what she was going to do. And today we found out. What does she have to say about this? Well, she took the general Republican uh, line that uh, these tax cuts will engender such a boom, such a wave of prosperity that everyone will just be making so much money that uh, you know they won't mind the. the, the the tax hike, basically, uh, you know, I mean, there's 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 no empirical data uh, that suggests this is going to happen. It's not been the case during past tax cuts. The greatest period of American prosperity, uh, the 1950s, 60s, and uh, the first half of the 70s, was a time of, of uniquely progressive uh, high taxation. So, uh, if anything, if there's a relation there, it's either non-existent or inverse between tax cuts and, uh, and, and the state of the uh, overall economy. The Republicans in the House claimed that they were going to be closing uh, loopholes and simplifying the tax code, but there's some provisions in here which just bugged the hell out of me. Uh, they eliminated the $250 deduction for school teachers who buy supplies for their students, but they kept the deduction for golf courses. Do you know anybody who owns a golf course? Uh, let's see, uh, the guy who lives, uh, not far from my office on Pennsylvania Avenue, point of 16. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Trump. Yeah. That's his name. And, 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 uh, and the other, speaking, my... speaking of someone who, when my daughter was a school teacher, would go with her to, uh, uh you know, a Staples and, uh, you know, buy school supplies for her. Uh, yeah, I have, I have fond memories of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of teachers do this, and of course, teachers aren't uh, aren't right. terribly well paid compared to people who own golf courses. And another part of the fine print that yeah. that bothers me uh, personally, as a emeritus professor at the University of California, under the Republican tax bill, doctoral students at universities would see huge tax increases since they get their tuition waived if they work on campus as teaching assistants or research assistants. Uh, the waived tuition would be counted as taxable income. So if you go to Stanford or USC where the tuition is like forty or $50,000 and that's waived if you work as a TA, uh, you're going to be taxed on the forty or $50,000, which makes it almost impossible uh, to be a grad student uh, in, at those yeah, places. Absolutely. This, this, this could effectively end uh, uh, America's preeminence in uh, uh, in universities and and having a, a cadre of really well educated people in the United States, which may be actually a Republican electoral strategy when you think about it. Uh, <laughs> and let me but, ask you one other question: There's yeah. 12 million people have used the deduction for interest on student loans. What is the status of the deducti the deductibility of interest on student loans under the Republican bill? I think it goes away. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, clearly the the purpose of this bill is to discourage learning past high school, <laughs> and and then, as you noted, in terms of what it does to uh, teachers' ability to uh, deduct expenses for their own classrooms, it isn't so great for education uh, starting at high school and going down either. So, uh, you know, uh, this this is sort of the make. Make America Dumb Again uh, <laughs> uh, program, when you think about it. 
Now we, but now this bill is not yet become law. Now the right. House bill goes to the Senate, and the Senate has its own ideas and its own problems in passing a tax bill. Let's talk about those. Uh, it does. Uh, the, the, the Senate bill uh, has, uh, incredibly enough, uh, eliminated uh, the uh, the pay-in that people are required to make if they uh, forego all insurance, the mandate. Uh, and the uh, Congressional Budget Office has estimated that that would mean that 13 million people would lose their health care as a result of the markets being more costly and, 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 and matters like that. So, in a sense, the Senate is confronted again with uh, crossing the bridge it has refused to cross every time the ACA repeal, the Obamacare repeal, came up for a vote. And uh, they've got one right-wing nut, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, who for his own reasons says he won't vote for the bill. But again, Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, Ron Johnson is a hero of the people. He's not going to vote for the Re- Republican tax bill in the Senate. How can you call him a nut? Uh, well, in, in, in every other way, and his own reasons are so idiosyncratic. I mean, uh, uh, although there's some merit to them, there that it favors corporations over smaller businesses, and there he's right. On every other, on every other, I mean, you know, it's 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 possible if they create, uh, you know, a, se- a separate a deduction for drilling for cheese. Let's say <laughs> he will switch his position because uh, Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator from Alaska who uh, has opposed the ACA repeals, uh, got a, a provision uh, in, in this bill which lifts the restrictions on drilling in the, uh, in the Arctic, in the Alaskan Arctic Natural Resources, whatever it is, reserve. And, and so, therefore, she supports the bill. So, I don't know, if, if Wisconsin is, is, is allowed to drill for cheese, it's possible <laughs> Ron Johnson will, will change his position as okay. well. But, I mean, then you have Susan Collins and maybe John McCain and, a couple of senators who have, don't like the increase in the deficit, like Bob Corker. Generally, it's every senator who is already every it's only Republicans who said they're not going to run again, who seem to feel free to exercise some independent judgment. So uh, we shall see uh, what happens in the Senate. So I just want to underline here: the Senate bill uh, eliminates the Obamacare mandate, as we call it in shorthand. The, the effect of that will be to deprive, what did you say, 10, is it 10 million people? 13, 13 million. 13 million people of health insurance. It's a little bit hard to explain, but let's just focus on the number for the time being. As you've said, the Senate failed to do this, to, to, to repeal Obamacare the last time they tried. Why do they, why do they want to try again? Do they know something that you and I don't? Well, uh, one, one reason is Donald Trump asked them to do this. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, they, they may think that this has come up so suddenly that all uh, the forces that mobilized effectively against the repeal earlier, uh, on earlier occasions haven't, don't have the time to really gear up this time, although they, they've shown the capacity to gear up pretty fast. Uh, and uh, uh, what, what's the thing about uh, someone who keeps repeating the same failed experiment? Uh, I've heard about that. So, yeah, so it's a form of insanity, right? That's the line. So, uh, yes. uh, you know, I mean, and to a certain degree, they're fundamentally one-trick ponies. Uh, uh, if Obama uh, passed it, they're against it, even though the effect of all their attempts to repeal it has been to increase support for the Affordable Care Act so that it's a clear majority and an issue that the Democrats 
used to sweep the Virginia elections and expand Medicaid by initiative in Maine. Uh, so, you know, they're off in their own somewhat hermetically sealed world, these Republicans. Now, if we ask the question, <clears throat> if we ask the question, how's the Republican tax bill doing in the opinion polls? Are Americans excited and happy about Republican promises that they're going to cut middle-class taxes? There's this Quinnipiac uh, poll. Do you have those, that Quinnipiac poll that came out yesterday? Uh, I, I, I did. I don't have it right in front 25 of me percent, 25 percent of Americans approve of the Republican uh, tax bill. 25 percent. Now, uh, and, and 52 percent disapprove. Why would the Republicans be pushing a bill that is supported by only a quarter of the people? Well, uh, campaign contributions might have something to do with it. Oh, really? Uh, there's, no, there's no doubt that the corporate sector as such, which is the main beneficiary of this and the major shareholders who uh, scarf up all the revenue uh, uh, in, in the corporate sector, uh, would uh, go from being filthy rich to filthier richer uh, as, uh, as a result of this and are willing to reward uh, Republican legislators accordingly. And as I suggested... In the case of even Republicans who may be electorally flirting with walking the plank, as some of uh, the Republican House members from California are, uh, they can at least count on you know a nice level, uh, kind of a, a you know a corporate finance retirement plan mm-hmm. if the voters, <clears throat> excuse me, decide to retire them. So uh, I think money has, uh, as not uncommonly happens in American politics, money has talked. And if the if the uh, Congress fails to pass a tax bill before Christmas, uh, it's very um, it's it's going to be a lot harder for them for the Republicans to go back to their donors and say, "Give us more money." The donors will be pissed off, and understandably so. They've spent hundreds of millions to get this corporate tax cut, and now's now it's time to do it. And Yeah, presumably, I mean, Republicans, you know, were born to cut taxes. This is why, <laughs> this is why they are uh, on this earth. And if they can't do that, having failed to do virtually everything else except approve uh, Trump's atrocious judicial appointments, uh, if they can't do that, uh, a lot of their core supporters, and particularly their major donors, uh, will wonder, what good are you? Uh, which is, uh, from their perspective, a, an eminently sensible question. In the couple minutes we have left here, I just want to look at the calendar. They, they, uh, they don't have a lot of time to finish up with this, do they? No, not, I mean, you know, they, can, if they, you know, I mean, they have the uh, capacity to extend this into, into next year. Uh, but uh, the closer this gets to the election... The more uh, Democrats will harp on it, the more people will look at it, and the list of uh, the, the already growing and considerable list of endangered Republicans will just grow longer. Uh, it's a line from uh, Macbeth: "If it were done, were best done quickly." Yes. Uh, I mean that—that's been the Republicans' approach to all of the increasingly unpopular measures they've they've tried to grapple with, uh, and you know, quickly uh, is uh, is is. I don't know where quickly uh, extends to on the calendar, but it doesn't extend that much further. And, and there's one other factor. Uh, if Roy Moore uh, is defeated, Alabama will be represented when Congress returns from its holiday vacation on January 3rd by a Democrat. 
uh, reducing the Republican uh, majority in the Senate uh, even closer to uh, to 50-50. And that's something they have to worry about. Even if Roy Moore is elected, they're proposing to exclude, to to refuse to seat him, which would also make it a lot harder to pass this after January 3rd. That's absolutely true. And so, uh, you know, they they hear the clock ticking at their back, time's wing chariot hurrying near, (laughs) something by Andrew Marvel, if they call it. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they know they, they don't have a lot of time on this, and uh, uh, how they reconcile this and what, what idiotic moves they make in order to uh, see that it doesn't increase the deficit by more than $1.5 trillion, we shall see. Andrew Marvel, William Shakespeare, and Harold Meyerson. Uh, Harold, thank you very much for enlightening us today. It's always great to have you on the show. On behalf of all three of us, we thank you. <laughs> I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Hitler in L.A., that's in a minute, on KPFK, when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. But first, Hitler in L.A. That's the subject of an amazing new book that's a bestseller in Los Angeles. The author is Steve Ross. He's an award-winning historian, professor of history at the University of Southern California, and director of the Kasdan Institute for the Study of the Jewish Role in American Life. He's written many books. His op-ed pieces have appeared in the L.A. Times, the Wall Street Journal, Politico, and other places. He's also an old friend of mine. We reached him today at home in L.A. Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the air. Well, I knew there were Nazi sympathizers in the United States. I knew there was this thing called the Bund, but I had no idea until I read your book that Hitler himself was interested in L.A. and sent a personal deputy here in 1937. This was four years before Germany declared war on the United States. Why was Hitler interested in, the, in Los Angeles at such an early year? Well, it, we, we let, let's go back to 1933, John. That's really when he starts it. He was interested for two reasons. He and his good friend Joseph, Joseph Goebbels, who was the propaganda minister, referred to as, you know, the Enlightenment minister, is what the Germans called it. Uh, but they were interested in L.A. for two reasons. The first and most important reason is they considered Hollywood the world's greatest propaganda machine. And Goebbels and Hitler both enjoyed watching movies, uh, and they felt that had Hollywood not been so effective with its World War I propaganda films, Germany could have won the support of many more countries and people throughout the world for their cause. And he was determined that Hollywood would not stop him and his ambitious of expanding the German Reich. And so in uh, June 1933, he sent a uh, counsel, George Gisling, to Los Angeles with one mission only, which is stop Hollywood from making any film that either criticizes or mocks Nazi Germany or Adolf Hitler. The second reason 
they were interested in L.A. was because they knew the ports of New York were very closely guarded, mainly because its mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, who many of your listeners may not know, was half Jewish. Yeah, I thought he was Italian. Uh, his father was Italian, his mother was Jewish. Uh-huh. So depending on which Jewish circles you run in, Fiorello LaGuardia was actually a Jew. Uh, and the Nazis referred to New York as Jew York, and they hated the mayor because he had the ports very closely guarded to make sure they couldn't sneak in illegal propaganda, money, or the worst of all, espionage agents. And so they looked at L.A., which had a long history of racism, anti-Semitism, very active Klan units, and they decided, they sent, even before they sent Gisling in March 1933, they sent a World War I veteran, Captain Robert Pape, with secret orders to start a Nazi organization in Los Angeles and try to expand it along the West Coast as well. And they also were using the ports of L.A., not the ports of New York, to send in their illegal propaganda, to send in uh, secret orders, to send in wads of money that would then be distributed throughout the country, and to send in espionage and sabotage agents through the ports of L.A. who would then travel throughout the United States. So there are... uh Germans being sent to Los Angeles to do Hitler's work, and then there are homeborn, naturalized American Nazis in L.A. Uh, talk about them a little bit. How, how significant, how many, how public were they? Well, they were very public, as were the Nazis. The Nazis held their first open meeting in L.A. in July 26, 1933, and announced that their goal was to uh, rid America and save it from the communist menace and the Jewish menace. Now, Hitler became Reich Chancellor in uh, January 1933. And the day he became Reich Chancellor, a man in Los Angeles, William Dudley Pelly, who had been a very successful screenwriter and made quite a bit of money at won an O. Henry Award for short story writing. So, you know, this isn't some crackpot. This is a very accomplished man. The problem is he hated his Hollywood bosses. And he said, if a painter can become the head of Germany, then I can become the head of a new organization. Hitler has his brown shirts, Mussolini has his black shirts, and tomorrow, January 31st, I am going to start the silver shirts. Hmm. And the silver shirts were the Nazis' American brethren in hate. Uh, You know, all these numbers are... No one really knows, but they probably had anywhere from five to 10,000 people nationally, and they had certainly several hundred in L.A. because they had several different lodges, all of which were meeting uh, in the city. And like the um, Friends of New Germany, they, the Nazis called themselves, and then later to Americanize themselves and sound more patriotic, they became the German-American Bund. Both of them believed the real problem in America were communists and Jews, who, as far as they were concerned, were one and the same. And let's go back to the how public question. Were there public meetings of Nazis in Los Angeles? Oh, yeah. You know, much has been said about the march in Charlottesville. and uh, the Earlier this year. Right, earlier this year. And the sort of neo-Nazis and uh, Klansmen and other white supremacists chanting the Jews will not replace us, 
Well, there were open meetings by Nazis and silver shirts and a whole number of groups, anti-Semitic groups, that, ad- that adopted patriotic-sounding names so they could claim to be true Americans, like the American Nationalist Party, the American Homesteaders, the American Rangers, the National Protective Order of Gentiles. And instead of chanting, the Jews will not replace us, they had open meetings in which they called for death to Jews. Open meetings. And open meetings, according to the spies who were at the center of my story, reported that these weren't just disgruntled crazies, that we could see an array of well-to-do people along with poor people attending meetings, some looking for solutions, some uh, looking for who to blame, and others looking for simply someone to take out their anger on, whether it's beating them up or at the very extreme, killing them. Uh, let's talk about the heroes of your story. You refer to the spies. Uh, Leon Lewis is an amazing person. Tell us about him. Right. Well, you know what? In the 1930s, and this is why the book is so relevant today, because at its core is the same question many of us are asking ourselves. What do you do when hate groups move from the margins to the mainstream of society and government authorities seem either complacent or complicit? And Leon Lewis had been asking himself this question since 1933 when Hitler comes to power. He had been the founding, the original founding executive secretary of the Anti-Defamation League in 1913, worked for them for many years, eventually moved to L.A. for health reasons in 1931. But this whole time he was tracking, because he also ran the ADL's international division, and even when he moved to L.A., he was working with the moguls, uh, studio heads as the ADL's representative to Hollywood, monitoring films for anti-Semitism. Well, once the Nazis, Jewish groups were debating what to do. Jews did not simply sit back and do nothing. They had a divided strategy. They couldn't agree on one strategy, and a divided strategy is not the same as no strategy. But Lewis was tired of talking and debating. When the Nazis held their first open meeting, he said, enough talk, we need action. And he went down. He was a member of the Disabled American Veterans and the American Legion. He went to the Disabled American Veterans, and he recruited four men, four World War I veterans, and their wives, three of them Christian, one a Jew, and asked them to go undercover and join every Nazi and fascist group in L.A. to try to rise up to positions of power and influence and to send them daily reports. And that's what he did from 1933 until the end of World War II. He kept running a series of spies because he would have them testify at certain points, hoping to awake Americans to the dangers of Nazism. But, you know, our myth of the good war that we recognized Hitler right away as evil is just a myth because no one cared. Well, that's so what I, this is going. Yeah. The most shocking thing to me in your book is not that there were Nazis in L.A. or even that the Nazis in L.A. planned to kill Jews. The most shocking thing to me was the reaction that Leon Lewis got when he brought this information to the police in Los Angeles. Tell us about that. Right. So Lewis has his undercover guys going into the Friends of New Germany starting early August 1933. And within several weeks, they uncover a plot to seize the armories in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego on the same day, 
They will, uh, both the Nazis and the silver shirts and stormtroopers on German vessels docking along the Pacific coast will go in together. Uh, they will take over the armories. Any soldiers who want to join them, they will welcome. And anyone who opposes them, they will shoot on the spot. Well, Lewis is a lawyer, and he started this because he wanted to do something, but his idea is I'm going to find out what they're up to and then turn the evidence over to authorities and let them handle it. So he goes to Police Chief Davis, known as Two-Gun Davis, the police chief who made infamous the phrase, shoot first, ask questions later, and he tells him about this plot to seize the armories, and he says, look, I'm not some crazy guy. I'm a captain in the Army, retired now. I'm, you know, I worked for the ADL all these years, and these are World War I veterans, and three of them are Christians. So this isn't a Jewish plot, and he's talking about two minutes into his spiel, and Davis stops him and says, you don't get it. You don't get it. Hitler's doing what he has to do to save Germany from the Jews who are causing all the problems, and that the real danger in L.A. are not Nazis and fascists. The real dangers are those communists living in the Jewish neighborhood of Boyle Heights. And as far as he was concerned, every commie was a Jew and every Jew a commie. And Lewis is like flummox. He can't believe he said this. So he goes to Sheriff Biscalus, who basically tells him the same thing. And then he goes to the FBI, and they tell him they're a little more sympathetic, but they say we can't do anything unless we get orders from, uh, you know, the Bureau headquarters in Washington. And J. Edgar Hoover doesn't order the L.A. Bureau to investigate Hermann Schwinn, the head of the Bund in L.A., and the number two Nazi in America until November 1941. Now, we know that the uh, Nazis did not seize the armories and, and uh, kill soldiers who resisted them. What happened to this plot, uh, despite the refusal of the LAPD or sheriff to do anything about it? Well, Lewis contacted the naval intelligence officers and told them that he now had evidence because one of his spies had gone down to San Diego where he discovered that, in fact, the Silver Shirts were preparing for this day by buying weapons from two Marines who were stationed in the Navy base who were secretly selling them guns and ammunition. And uh, Lewis contacted the naval intelligence, told them what was going on, and naval intelligence went in, arrested all these guys, broke up the plot, and Leon Lewis wanted to stay under the radar and stayed under the radar his whole life because he said if word gets out that it was the Jews who tipped off naval intelligence, people won't, they'll be, you know, in uh, 2017 terms, John, they'll call it fake news, mm. that no one will believe it was true, that it was all being made up. But in fact, those guys went on trial. They were convicted, and the Navy intelligence was the only government agency on the West Coast who listened to Lewis in the years before Pearl Harbor. We've only got about two minutes left here. Uh, what are the lessons of this? You've said the question is, what do you do when hate groups uh, engage in public action? What lessons do you draw from this story? I think the lesson is that it's up to every American to do something. And it doesn't have to be grand. Remember, Leon Lewis never took up a gun. He never fired a weapon. He simply said he asked Americans to stand up against hate. And, you know, he would not necessarily say today, go undercover and join these groups, because three of his agents died 
a very suspicious death. But I think the lesson is, if you hear hate, you hear somebody making hate speech, stand up, don't close your mouth, don't be afraid, stand up and say something. If you know there's going to be a demonstration of uh, either neo-Nazis, white supremacists, go and protest. Don't do it violently. And here's where I disagree with Antifa. You can't go prepared to engage in violence because it gives people like Trump the uh, evidence to then say, see, there are bad people on both sides. Instead, be peaceful, but don't absorb any of this. Don't allow it to happen. And the men Lewis recruited, he only had one Jewish agent. Everyone else was a Christian. And as far as they were concerned, when they talked about Jewish Americans, Catholic Americans, black Americans, they argued that everything before the hyphen was an adjective. And what we all have in common is we're Americans. And they said, we are not going to sit back and allow a foreign group or even domestic fascists to attack other Americans. And I think that's the lesson. Simply stand up and imagine if 100 million Americans simply stood up. They don't have to do grand gestures. Stand up to hate and say, not in my country. This is not what my America stands for. Stand up to hate. The book That's is right. the book is Hitler in L.A. How Jews foiled Nazi plots against Hollywood and America. It's a bestseller. The author is Steve Ross. Steve, thanks for this book and thanks for thanks. talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, David Cole of the ACLU, talked about the resistance in Trump year one. Harold Meyerson had our Washington update. We reviewed the news of uh, Senator Al Franken. Uh, he he has been he has acknowledged engaging in sexual misconduct while on a USO tour before he became a senate a senator. He has apologized. The apology has been accepted by his victim, Leanne Tweeden, who's on a TV here in L.A. Uh, she says she accepts his apology and she is not calling for him to step down. Uh, that was your Minnesota moment. We also uh, talked to Steve Ross about Hitler in L.A. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly with more on Al Franken. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 